Church, would you pray with me? Father, you do remove all our guilty stains. And so, Father, we ask now that you would, through your word which you spoke, and that in the beginning brought all that is into being, God, that you would now speak again through that word which we have in front of us, inspired by that same spirit, revealing to us the living word who is Jesus. And God, we ask that you would remove from our minds those things that might distract the uncertainties of this coming week and burdens from this past. And God, in this moment, this present, that God, we would hear from you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, if you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis 4, and as you're doing that, a question, how many of you, this is moms and dads, how many of you remember life before kids? Some, I would imagine, whose children are grown and gone, look back fondly. A little forlorn that time went by so fast. Others, more, more likely those whose children are still running or toddling around the house, do so longingly, remembering the good old days. Oh, those good old days when you didn't have to worry about diapers, formula, car seats, strollers, teething, or teenagers, depending on your toddler's age, actual or emotional. My daughter. Can you remember life before kids? You know, the crazy thing about our memories is how they tend to idealize the past, don't they? Life was always better when? Back then. Back then. And granted, this is a generalization, I know, but I believe it's an accurate one because here's my theory. Back then, whenever that then was, you knew less than you know now. Before kids, you didn't realize or know the reality of raising embodied depravity. You didn't appreciate the depth of your own brokenness, your own heart's brokenness, until after weeks without sleep, the real you began to show itself. You you couldn't have admitted your own physical limitations until little Elena just refused to stop crying and you'd exhausted every known remedy short of duct taping her mouth closed and you were pretty sure that wasn't a solution and it was also illegal, but you weren't far from trying it. It's true, isn't it? Now, I wasn't any stronger or more composed before my children were born. I was just more arrogant in my ignorance. And the older I become, the more I appreciate how little, how little I know. And the more I am amazed at God's grace. For as John Newton so poignantly wrote many years ago, it's grace that's got me safe this far. And it's only going to be grace that seeds me home. Now, I would imagine that we've all felt like life was better back then at some point. And I'm sure, given the qualifications that you may employ, it may have been to a degree. However, there's only one couple who could ever truly say, we remember when life was perfect. Only Adam and Eve, as they rocked on their porch, could look at each other and Adam say, honey, you remember the good old days when life was perfect? 
It's for this reason that John MacArthur suggests the two most potent evangelists for trusting God who ever lived surely would be Adam and Eve. For who better understands what it means to be lost? Who better understood what it meant to fall victim to Satan? How many times do you think Adam would have sat his boys on his knee? Or Eve sat the kids down at the table and told them what Eden was like? You know, Adam and Eve could remember exactly what life lived in God's presence without sin was like. And most certainly they passed those memories on to their children for as we're about to see today, the worship that marked the garden in the beginning continued after they were exiled. And it continues on in our present where I believe we'd benefit from seeing how together. So I invite you to follow along now as I read our text for this morning. Genesis 4, and we'll start with verse 1. Moses writes, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod east of Eden. And let's just stop there for now and ask that the Lord would bless the public reading of his word. Church, when we concluded our time together last week, if you were with us, we did so by commenting on God's grace God's grace displayed as he removed Adam and Eve from the garden and proximity to the tree of life. Not to punish them primarily, although this act can be seen as such, but rather to protect them. To protect them from eating and experiencing the reality of the fall forever. God knew his people's hearts. He knew that in their experience of sin and its effect, that they would do all that they could to reverse the circumstances. And thus, he graciously removed them from the garden. 
where they came to know the reality of life after death. Life after death, despite their actions, as we've seen together, meriting death, Adam and Eve were spared. God, as we saw together last week, showed mercy and grace as He, it was God, who sought out the guilty. He covered the shameful. He addressed the fearful and made them hopeful as He promised to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and hers. He will crush the serpent's head and the serpent would strike his heel. Despite deserving death, God atoned for Adam and Eve's sin. An innocent substitute paid their debt as its life's blood covered them, as God clothed this couple in animal skins. God showed Adam and Eve mercy, promising them life and victory over sin. And Adam, in response, trusted God. Where I believe Adam's faith, Adam's faith might be seen in two actions. The first is given us, if we were to look back in chapter 3 and verse 20, where despite meriting death, but having been shown mercy, Adam hears God's promise of offspring through his wife. Adam hears this promise, and he proceeds to name his wife, who to this point has been known as the woman, Eve. Why? We're told it's because she would become the mother of all the living. It wasn't at that point, and yet knowing the reality of guilt and of shame before God, along with the consequence of breaking God's command, Adam, I believe here, clings in faith to God's promise, God's good news if you will, that one day he would be free from sin's effect and restored to life as he'd known it in the garden. How? Through the offspring who would crush the adversary's head. And so Adam fixed his eyes on the future despite reality to the contrary, and he believed God's word was going to bring it to pass. And so I believe that Adam's faith is given us here first by his naming Eve, Eve. And then second, by his lying with his wife. That's referenced there in verse 1. Because you remember how God's promise was, was to come? It was to come through the offspring of the woman. And so what I believe we see Adam demonstrating here as he's intimate with Eve or as he knows her is faith. Where faith is, as we know, the writer of Hebrews will later tell us, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. Adam's actions reveal belief that God would provide as he had promised. And so Adam believed, but we see that Eve did as well. Where I believe Eve's faith is given us as she accepts her name. She accepts her name. And I recognize that's an argument from silence. But it's one that I still feel has merit. Because we're not told that Eve did not accept her name. But a second way that we see Eve's faith is that she acknowledges God's hand in her firstborn's birth. And here, given us in verse 1, she declares, With the help of the Lord... I have brought forth a man. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. That's how our NIV reads or renders verse 1. If you have a different translation, maybe the ESV, the English Standard Version, it reads, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Or the Holman offers, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Now, there are two ways in which Eve's words may be and, and have been taken to mean here. With the first... There's one group of scholars, translators, who see this as an acknowledgement here of God, uh, an admission of His provision. Acknowledging God and admitting His provision. In other words, Eve is recognizing by her statement that all life comes from the Lord. 
and that this child that she is having or bearing is merely God's gift to her. In, in essence, she's recognizing God is the one who's provided. And it's a view that then is supported by the name that she gives to her baby, Cain, which in the original language of the Old Testament means a formed thing, and it's something that we see then later used to describe craftsmen as one of Cain's own descendants. We'll see later, Tubal Cain was the original metal worker. And so there's this one group who takes the perspective of Eve's words here as expressing faith, but then there's a second camp who hears overtones of independence in what Eve declares. They, they hear Eve's, I have brought forth there. I have brought forth as a, a boastful attempt to make herself like God. And they support their understanding by contrasting that first phrase with Eve's words that we would find at the very end of chapter 4 in verse 25, where there, following Abel's death and the birth of Seth, his brother, she states, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. No reference in verse 25 to any part that she played in that case. Now, regardless of which perspective you take, the point that I want to make sure we don't miss is Eve also displayed faith. And so despite being condemned to death by their actions, Adam and Eve experienced grace, and with that grace, life. Now, was that life as God had provided it before sin entered creation? Certainly not. Absolutely not. Adam's lot was marked by harsh labor and fruitless toil, while Eve's by pain in childbirth and the constant temptation to usurp her lazy husband. But they still lived by grace and in hope of all that God had promised. And friends, while we don't share Adam and Eve's recollections of life in Eden and life before the fall, we do share their sin and their guilt. There's not a one of us is born sin-free. We don't enter the world with a clean slate only to screw it up by our first screams. As the Apostle Paul explained in words that we looked at together last week in Rome, Romans chapter 5, sin, Paul says, entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men or people, all people. We all have sin. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin, why? Because we're sinners. Adam's disobedience corrupted human nature. And therefore, as descendants of Adam, we share his sin. In, in Paul's words, also in chapter 5, he says that the disobedience of the one man made the many sinners. King David expressed the same sentiment earlier in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, which we've been considering on Wednesday nights. Surely, David wrote, I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And if you disagree this morning, friend, just give it time. And the full expression of human depravity will only convince you, won't it, parents? You don't have to wait long to know this to be true. We all share Adam's sin and guilt. We also share their hope in God's promise. For just as the promised offspring of the woman was Adam and Eve's hope. It is our hope for life after death. Peter declared in Acts, recorded his experience in the Sanhedrin where he told all who were listening, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But while Adam and Eve didn't know the name of their offspring, we do. It's Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? 
So graciously removed from the garden, Adam and Eve experienced life after death as they clung to God's promise. They also evidenced, I believe, worship after exile. Worship after exile. Whereas we saw several weeks ago, in the garden, their purpose in God's creating them was this, was defined by this practice. Given us chapter 2 and verse 15, there as working or caring, but I think more accurately rendered as worshiping and obeying. Now, in exile, that purpose remained, only it was given new expression as evidenced there for us by the actions described in verses 3 and 4, where we read this. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So the first thing that I believe we see here is that both boys brought an offering. Both boys brought an offering. Cain's comes from a field, Abel's from his flocks. Where what's important here is not the occupation or the career choice of these men, meaning it doesn't matter that Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. There's nothing inherently right or inherently wrong with either of these roles. They serve the same end, and that's simply to provide food and sustain physical life. And so they're of equal status here. The roles aren't important, in my opinion. What is, is their behavior. This bringing of an offering to the Lord. And I say that that's what's important because by this action, both men are revealing their heart's need to acknowledge God, which likely was taught them by their parents. Now, again, the scriptures are silent here as to how Cain or Abel knew how to bring God or that they should bring God an offering. It could have been that God informed them of this. Moses doesn't say, and for that reason, I'd be hesitant to, to attribute their behavior to explicitly divine given dictates. Instead, I feel more comfortable suggesting that the actions here reflect those of Adam and Eve, passing along what they had seen, and these boys' own hearts design. Meaning, as human beings created in God's image to reflect His glory, worship was just in their DNA. Just as it's in ours, isn't it? For don't we all feel the need to acknowledge God? Now, this doesn't have to be, and, and sadly, in most cases today, it isn't the God of the Bible. But we all evidence the need to worship something. Be it be it a job, a goal, a possession, a person. We all possess the need to acknowledge God. And with Cain and Abel, to appease God, as these boys' actions also reveal. Reveal their heart's need to appease God. Both men evidence awareness of a duty, let's say, to honor God with gifts, which at this point ought to strike us as strange. Because God is the originator of everything. I mean, just three chapters prior, we've seen he brought all that is into being from nothing. So what could possibly possess people to give back to him, to think that he could use what they possess when it all originates with him in the first place? Unless, of course... It was an action mirroring that shown them when God gave them grace by covering their sin and shame. And church, isn't that what's at the heart of worship? It's giving to God not because He needs it, but because it reflects the highest expression of love and devotion. It's the defining expression, as John tells us, the Apostle John in his first letter in chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 John 4, 10. This is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent or gave, gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, we give when we worship. Why? Because we love what we worship. And love is, is giving. Love is giving as evidenced by Cain and Abel's actions here. Unfortunately, only one offering was accepted. Only one offering. Later, latter half of verse 4 reads that the Lord looked on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Why? You ever ask that question? You know, what is it about Cain's offering that, that God apparently doesn't like? And it might seem a silly question at first, but this has eternal ramifications if we remember the reality that this action is merely an expression of worship. So, so what's at stake here then? It is not a matter of meat and vegetables, right? It's not, is God a vegan or a carnivore? This isn't a question of practice. This is a matter of principle. Unfortunately, many insist otherwise, arguing that Cain's offering wasn't accepted simply because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. However, our narrative suggests that both offerings in themselves, both offerings were fine, seeing that they're both described as offerings, not sacrifices. Further, both of these offerings appear to be first fruits, meaning Cain's offering of the fruits of his soil seems to stand on equal footing with Abel's firstborn of his flocks. And so Cain wasn't bringing old fruit or, or damaged fruit here. This, the issue here isn't the offering. And I believe further support for this perspective may be seen in the author's silence. Our author doesn't say, Moses doesn't say that Cain's offering was flawed and that Abel's was blameless. Rather, I believe our author leaves us the task of judging between these two gifts based upon the giver's response. The giver's response. Well, what does Cain do? The man gets angry, doesn't he? Cain gets angry. Angry against God, as given us by the last words there of verse 5, and angry with his brother, as so evidently demonstrated by his actions. Instead of innocently inquiring as to what possibly could I have done wrong, God, what, 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 what went wrong? What could have led to your displeasure or response towards my, my, my offering? Cain goes ballistic. And church, how revealing is that response? And how consistent with words that we find Jesus preaching later on his Sermon on the Mount when warning about false prophets? Warning false prophets, says his listeners, he declared, it's by their what that they'll be known fruit, right? It's by their actions. It's these words. Yeah, Jesus knew the words of false prophets were dangerous, but even more telling were these false prophets' actions. Why? Because they flowed from their hearts. And can't we all attest to that this morning? Have you ever had somebody speak words to you that they, it just made you angry? Oh, just chafe. Even when they preface what they were about to say is, brother, this is in love, man. I say this because I love you. Oh. And it, you know what I find so amazing about how those words, or how they affect us, is if those words spoken are baseless, groundless, there's nothing to them, then they don't bother us in the least. Now, certainly we may be disappointed that we've been misunderstood or we've been misjudged, 
But in that moment, our heart's response is one of sadness, not anger. Now, you contrast that attitude with the response Cain evidenced. Why do we get angry? I would argue we get angry only when in an instance like this there's truth to the words that have been spoken. And thus in Cain's offerings rejection, I believe God was revealing that man's heart. He didn't have a repentant heart recognizing that he deserved death but had been graciously spared. He, he didn't bring an offering of thanksgiving demonstrating a growing appreciation for grace, God's grace and his amazing love. No, Cain brought an offering celebrating his achievements. Is this how you approach God? Is this how you approach God in worship? When we come to church, when we come to Sunday worship, do we come having spent the week faithfully reading our Bibles, studying the most current theological blogs, maybe even having spent time in the classics with Chuck Spurgeon and some Jonathan Edwards? And do you, do you come ready to demonstrate your holiness and how you already know so much where you may genuinely wonder from time to time, what could I possibly get out of sitting with all of these people so different than me looking at a single text? Well, what could I possibly get? Do you come to worship with an attitude of expectation that I'm going to get something this week because I'm bringing something this week. Man, I'm all prayed up, confessed up. I'm even obeyed up. God owes me this time. And then does hearing the gospel taught, sung, prayed, and preached, does it break your heart and thrill your soul for what God has done for you? Or do you just find yourself getting angry? Cain got angry. Abel revealed gratitude. Our text, text explains how he brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks, where this description, I believe, has bearing both on the quality or the offering itself and on Abel's heart, because it reflects the quality and the character of the man's gift. And so this was Abel's best. This is the, the fattest of his firstlings, and as such, it's flowing from a heart that is broken before God. Well, Cain's offering reflected his own achievement with no apparent regard for quality. Abel's best of the best symbolized his recognition of need to have his sin covered by the death of an innocent substitute. It seems he shared the faith of his parents, Adam and Eve, and their appreciation of God's atoning sacrifice. Do we, church, have you come this morning to a point in your life where you've admitted that you... You have nothing God needs. You are not possessed of anything that could obligate God to work on your behalf. You bring nothing to the table, so to speak, in this deal but sin. And your best efforts to broker the deal on your own serve only to further offend God's infinite holiness. Abel's best wasn't acceptable because it was the best. And let me say that again. Abel's Abel's best wasn't acceptable because it was the best. It was acceptable because it revealed obedience and his heart's growing recognition of his total dependence upon God for everything. So both boys brought an offering, but only Abel's was accepted. And in church, I believe that in this is revealed to us what is the heart of true worship. Worship then that is acceptable to God. Because this is how John later describes Abel. This is John the Apostle, how he describes Abel's actions. And again, this is in that first letter I referenced earlier. 
But this time, chapter 3 and verse 12. In 1 John 3, 12, John describes Abel as a righteous man. Where righteous depicts action in obedience to command. And thus, I believe that Abel displayed here, demonstrated in this chapter that we've just read. He demonstrated the love that Jesus later called for in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 15, when he spoke to his disciples. And there he declared, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, there's a distinction here that I want to make sure we don't miss. Because it would be a tragedy this morning if someone walked away under the impression that the reason Abel's worship was accepted was because he simply obeyed and he gave it a good old try, his best. No, the acceptability of this offering wasn't bound to the giver's ability, but to God's grace. Abel gave what he did out of grateful obedience for God's gracious salvation. And friends, in the same way, our worship isn't acceptable to God because we give it our best, the good old college try. Because for one, what's the best, right? Is it a tithe? Devotions every morning? Sharing my faith weekly? I mean, what constitutes best? Such a, a subjective term on a sliding scale. How much is enough? Which was the question posed Jesus by a young man in Mark 10, wasn't it? No, our worship isn't acceptable because we give our best, but because Jesus is our best. He is our very great reward. Thus, we go sell all that we have and follow him. And that's an act that Jesus states in and of ourselves is impossible with his memorable comparison of a camel going through the eye of a needle, if you recall. No, it's impossible with us, but with God, all things are possible. And so worship that is acceptable to God is that obedience which flows from hearts, not attempting to placate God, not attempting to placate God and thereby merit acceptance and reward. No, worship rather is obedience which flows from hearts growing in appreciation of God's gracious salvation, which he has worked for us and in which we participate by faith, through Christ alone. Now, does this define our worship church? Do we come week in, week out hungry to be with God's people? Desperate even as a deer pants for water to be reminded of God's grace and, and longing to give our very best back to God in grateful obedience. Why? For all that he has given us. Or do we come to get? Do we come to have an experience that makes us feel good or bad, depending on your mood, where maybe a good chastising, a good self-flagellation, like an hour in a sauna makes you sweat, almost feel sick, but then as soon as you start to cool down, you feel a little better for the experience, but unwilling to change the lifestyle that led to your need for said experience. Is worship about you, or is it about the Lord? Because here, removed from the garden, Adam and Eve experienced, as we've seen, life after death. They clung in faith to God's promised deliverer, a faith Abel demonstrated, and that Cain denied by his worship in exile. And it's a denial that soon led to death despite life. Death despite life. Verse 8, 
we're told that Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Isn't Cain's murderous behavior so revealing? It just for one, why does it matter as a brother who had brothers? Why does it even matter that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's wasn't? I mean, why does Abel matter in the first place? What does he have to do with Cain's anger? Why is it that Cain is so incensed by his brother Abel? And church, I believe the answer is because Abel's obedience was the very embodiment of what Cain hated. Faith in God. Cain's pride couldn't stand humility. It couldn't stand self-debasement and repentance. Oh, for Cain, it was all about him. He'd rejected dependence on God. He'd rejected grace and was basing his religion on works. And yes, Cain is religious because we see here he's bringing offerings. And not begrudgingly, it appears. And the problem for Cain was his prideful effort when placed beside Abel's humble submission was seen for what it really was. Sin. And that's why he lashed out. As do we, don't we? And don't we despise those holier-than-thou people? I mean, don't we get angry when someone suggests something that we've been doing may be offensive to God? And isn't it strange and sad, in light of these realities, how few churches, it seems, in our nation concern themselves with sin, choosing instead to focus on love, sacrifice, doing good, bringing gifts, serving others, sustaining community, all good things. But isn't it telling when we consider Cain's behavior? Because sin doesn't like to be called out, does it? Sinners don't like to be called out. We like to be loved, by which we mean accepted, and our behavior condoned. But we can't stand to be held up to the light, do we? Friends, what is your heart's response this morning? To your sin. Now, are you broken by its offense against a holy God and, and the fact that it was according to scripture your sin, my sin that put Christ on the cross, that he died as a substitute paying the debt of death that my sin had incurred? Do you hear the gospel messaging and your heart just thrill at the extent of God's grace? Or do you get angry? Angry at the thought I'm being told I'm sinful. And I pray that if you're here this morning and, and you've been agonizing over whether or not my worship is acceptable, am I bringing God enough? Is it acceptable to God? I pray that you've found freedom in the knowledge it's only through Christ. It's only in Christ that we can find peace with God. We can't do anything but rest. Rest completely in what Christ has already done. For it was, if it was up to us, then we would run the risk of losing what we've earned because of our, 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 our inconsistency and ineptitude. But it may also be this morning that what you've heard has just irritated your soul. Maybe it made you angry. Friend, if this is true, then I pray that as we close our service in a moment, that you'd find me. I mean, don't knock me out, but let's talk about that anger and what it might reveal about you and how it might lead you to experience God's grace. Don't, don't let your anger 
lead you to act as Cain did. But may we find God's grace sufficient and hope in His promise provided for us in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, You are a God of love. And You have displayed Your love fully for us, definitively for us, by sending Christ Jesus, who wasn't merely the perfect example of what men and women are to be, but more importantly, He came as a substitute, taking upon Himself the wrath that we had justly earned, taking upon Himself the punishment that we had earned and satisfying it forever. Father, thank You for how Your holy anger and Your eternal love find their fullest expression at the cross. Father, thank You for what You have worked for us in Christ Jesus. Father, thank You for how as we look to Scripture we see the provision that You have made from the very beginning for salvation by grace through faith. Father, how even moments after Adam and Eve depart the garden, they do so with hope and a promise. Not in their active working out and faithful adherence to, but simply by their belief as we've seen. Father, and that same means of salvation is ours. With the difference being we know the name of the offspring you promised. And it's Jesus. Father, thank you that Christ has come and set us free. Set us free from the law which revealed to us our sin. And giving us the, the, the joy, that happy condition that is ours who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that if there are any who do not know that freedom. That Lord, you might, by your grace, open eyes to that truth today for your glory. To you and you only, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.